morning. Um, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 2 in just a minute. Thanks, guys. Um, this morning is, is a little bit bittersweet for me uh, because this will be the, the last time that I have the opportunity to speak to you guys on staff of Cross Life Church. Um, and so Rachel and I and my family have been over at the East Campus serving there for the last several months. Um, and God has brought us Jeremy Good out there to be the East Campus pastor. So that allows us to come back for another week. Um, but as most of you guys know, uh, Rachel and I and my family and a few others um, from here and from Virginia are actually going to be going to start a brand new church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the turn of the year. Uh, and so we actually have already bought our first church building, uh, otherwise known as the house that we're renting, and uh, we are excited to go. Um, and so uh, I wanted to say, too, part of the beauty of uh, some of the East Campus band being here this morning is that the four that were up here um, have also been in our college young adult ministry for the last five years. Um, and I just love them to death. And Jeremy and Ashley, the two that we're singing right here, um, are actually uh, being called by God to go with us. Um, and so we are not stealing them, okay? Uh, but you guys are planting seeds, and they have grown up here. Um, and the ministry of Cross Life Church does not just exist in Oviedo, Florida, um, but around the world, literally, and now in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, so I also just want to say thank you uh, to the church. Um, it's been just an extreme blessing to be here, to be able to grow up here. I had a couple of years of elementary school here, uh, middle school and high school, and so many of you have invested in me um, and spent time with me and uh, also allowed me to come back after college and seminary uh, and be here for the last five years. And so it's been a major blessing. Uh, we covet your support, your prayers uh, as we go. And uh, this morning, uh, I was kind of given the task of, of kind of talking to you a little bit about the vision of uh, Redemption Hill Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that will be beginning and coming soon in January. Um, but as I was praying about this, I, I just began praying, like, God, how can I kind of cast the overall vision for Redemption Hill Church while also speaking to the vision as a church uh, as a whole and, and be uh, a blessing to and a challenge to, um, and in some cases, many cases, a pat on the back to Cross Life Church as well. Uh, and so I believe that God is kind of giving me this word to share with you guys this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and so I want us to go there. If you aren't already, make sure you turn there. We're going to read it in just a second. This morning will be just a little bit uh, different in the sense that my Bible is completely glued together. That's, that did not happen in the first service. That was weird. Um, and so it, it's not brand new, and I have read this page before, I promise. Um, but it'll be a little bit different because I want us to kind of get all of the application and kind of talk about what this text is meaning up front. And then we're going to dive into the text because I think it'll help us to understand what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is kind of Jesus's sermon. If we were to say, like, what would Jesus preach to us if he were here before us? We can look to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount and kind of get his podcast, so to speak. 
Um, and so I wanted us to look at that this morning. And uh, let's just go ahead and read it together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 2. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13 through 16, our focal point this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, and why I wanted to back it up to verse 2, is that he's really talking about this new kingdom. That Christ has actually come and was born of a virgin. He's broken into the darkness. He's broken into a sinful world. He's brought light into a place where there was no light. He's become the salt in a place where there was no salt. And he's come to this earth to speak and to share who he is and what he is about to do. And for us, we are all people who are looking back at what he has done and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And so he's saying, because I'm coming and because I'm going to the cross to pay the penalty for your sinfulness, and I'm going to rise from the grave to overcome that sin, that there might be no separation between you and I any longer, and that my people might be my people, that I might call you as we just sung sons and daughters, and that we as a body of Christ might rest in that, might sing that with all of our might, and it be the truest words that we could possibly proclaim. And he's saying because of that, there is a kingdom that you are now an, inheritant, uh, an inheritor of. There's a kingdom that you will now be a part of. And, and it doesn't just bring peace to us now here on earth. And it doesn't just give peace to us in the end when all things are redeemed and all things are restored and all things are made new. But there's a kingdom that is being brought here, that there's a redemptive work that is being done here. And Christ leaves us with a mission to redeem as we have been redeemed. That, that his kingdom would be pursued on earth as it is in heaven. That we would seek his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so with what my family and I are about to go and do, and we've been feeling that God has been leading us to do for 
a while now, there's a lot of questions that come up and there's a lot of determining things that are going to happen and how are we going to do church and, and what's church going to look like. And, and one of the, the biggest questions that we've had to address is what actually makes a great church? N- none of us want to ever go and plant or be a part of or come to a church that just isn't that great. And so this constant thought has been on my head and and I've been talking with pastors and meeting with as many pastors as I can, both here and, and in Winston-Salem and, and anywhere that a pastor would kind of speak truth into our lives and what we're about to go do. And a lot of church planters and a lot of uh, people who are in charge of plant, church planting networks and, and the Southern Baptist Convention, all of these people. And, and every single time the conversation goes to, and I, and I understand why, and, and I understand uh, the thought behind it, but it's all about our strategies, and our philosophies, and our ministries. What philosophy are we going to have? What strategies are you going to accomplish with that? What ministries do you need to be thinking about? And, and how are you going to strategically put people uh, as a part of your team that can fulfill those and, and get into those leadership positions? And those things are good, but God's been comp- uh, just weighing on me time and time and time again to ask the question, like, what really makes a church great? Is it really the strategy? Is it really the philosophy? Is it really the ministries that we're a part of? What actually makes it a great thing that God has designed it to be without falling into the trap of leaning on man's best attempt? What actually builds a community that's on mission for his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And I want you to follow me just for a minute because there's a point in what I'm about to kind of lay out before us and and I want us to really see this this morning. And I think even though most of us, if I said what makes a church great and I said one, two, three, and all of us just kind of yelled it out, the vast majority of us have been in Sunday school long enough to know that the answer is Jesus. Right? And we would kind of all just get that out in the open and we would understand Jesus is the answer. But I want to kind of just face reality. That though we know that in our heads, and though I believe that we believe that with all of our hearts, there's often a disconnect between what we know and we believe and the way that we actually live. There's a struggle that happens in every single one of us. There's a struggle in me as I'm coming up with all of these things and I'm praying through all of these plans to to rely on, oh my gosh, I've got the greatest strategy that's ever happened. This cannot fail. This cannot not be glorifying to God. And we so easily fall into that because the nature for us and our fallback mode as religious people, is to play church. It's to just kind of come. It's a part of who we are. We're religious people, and so this is a part of what we do uh, throughout the week. We just kind of do whatever it is that we do throughout the week, and we compartmentalize all everything that kind of goes on in our life, but we are religious, and so we are going to make it a point to be at church when we can be at church. And the tendency in that is to feel like you are on the mission that God has called you to be because you do come to a church that has a vision and that has a mission and that serves the community and that goes on mission trips and plants churches 
And, and so we feel like, and we have this idea that because I'm religious and because I go and because I am part of, then I am on the mission that Christ has sent me on. I am a part of the body of Christ and I'm seeing redemptive work done here on earth as it is in heaven. When in reality, we just kind of see it as another human entity. Something that we're just a part of, almost like we would just be a part of a club or a part of a team. Basically looking for camaraderie with those who have our common commonalities. We're all religious, so let's gather together. We have to watch out for this because it is our tendency, and the tendency that we have in this is because God has created us to have community with him. But through man's sin, Adam, first man's sin, all of us are born into sin. We have sinful natures. And so that community that we were created to have with God was separated and lost because of our sin. Nothing that is holy can be in relationship or community as we were created to with that which is unholy. But we did not lose our desire for the community that we were created to have with God. So therefore, every single one of us in this place, from the most outgoing to the most introverted person, is communal. We desire relationship. We desire friendships. We long to be known and to know others. We're just not seeking and we're just not in naturally the community that we are created to have, actually have and fulfill what we long for. So in our sin, rather than depending on Christ, and so us coming together and saying that community we are created to have is God, that, that he is the one who is all things, that we come together in unity and love and compassion as one with peace and unity, true peace, true love, true unity, because all of us are facing upward and all of us are worshiping outward towards the one who created us to have community in him. And that actually satisfies and fulfills us. But instead of that, we turn at the original sin and thus after every single one who is born into the nature of sin inward. This is what Adam did. This is what Eve did. Upon sinning, we go everything that we were doing in community with God, we believe that we can have within ourselves. He doesn't deserve what I am giving, but I deserve what I've been giving to him. And so we went from seeking community in him and having everything that we long for to turning to our inner self. Turning from the community we were created for and turning to ourselves for survival and for meaning and for purpose. And that breaks the relationship that we were created to have with God. And that also, therefore, breaks the relationships that we were created to have with one another. Because no longer are we standing side by side in unity under one truth and one creator and one that created us to glorify him and him alone. But now we are all turned inward and I am deserving and I got to look out for me. And if I don't look out for me, no one else will look out for me. And so all of us are having a place of disunity amongst one another because all of us are seeking what we once lost in Christ but cannot find any longer and it cannot be found in ourselves. This is also, just kind of point this out, usually because of our, our inward nature and our, and, our, and our kind of turning from God and looking inward, this is the battle that we face we will usually, although we are communal people, keep 
community and keep people at arm's length. Because we do have that feeling that if I don't do it, no one else will. But I need community, so I've got to look out for myself. I don't want to be burned. I, I can't really trust, but I need these people, but I'll keep them at this distance. And what we'll begin to find is that the vast majority of time where there's not redemptive work happening by the grace of God is that all of the people I actually let a little bit close to me will look just like me, will talk just like me, will dress just like me. Because I'm so inward focused, but I'm so communal driven that I've got to have people in my life, but I can't just trust anything. So the ones that look just like me, the ones that act just like me, the ones that believe just like me, they're the ones that I'll let just a little bit close. And this is the central way that we work in our sinfulness. So we're no longer centered on God, which allows us to be fulfilled in him, therefore selfless and equal with all others. And an inward turn causes us to focus on our own heart's desires and what our own eyes see and believe that they need. And even the church can become self-focused if we lose sight of our first love. That is our nature. And if we're not leaning continuously on what makes the church great, what makes the church unique, what makes it the one thing that the gates of hell cannot prevail against, the one thing that the power of sin cannot overcome, the one thing that the sting of death cannot touch, the thing that makes the church, while the world is fragile all around it, standing on and built on solid ground, The thing that that while the world is divided, we can actually come together and have unity. While the world is selfish, we can actually love selflessly. While the world is confused, we actually know exactly who we are and therefore know exactly what to do. While the world is grasping for satisfaction, we then are people who are looking for a place to share the satisfaction that's overflowing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us. And while the world is decaying, we know that we are everlasting. And we know that we can bring light and we can bring salt into the darkness. So what makes a great church? As we've said, most of us would say Jesus, and that's true. And that's why the number one thing this morning that makes a great church, number one, you have got to see Jesus as everything. This is what Jesus is saying in verses 1 through 12, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But if not, then the way that the society and culture around us does community will leak into the church body, and we will do community just like the world around us does community. It will not be great, and it will just be man's greatest attempt. And it creeps in so easily. All it takes are good things that we see as great things or that we make the best thing. Losing sight of the greatest treasure and that that treasure is Christ. And we can kind of see this as we kind of start thinking and I think most of us would, as I said, say that Jesus is kind of the answer for that and that Jesus is everything should be the main focus of the church. It's a little bit of a no-brainer to many of us. But then I started thinking to myself as I'm 
kind of working through all of these things, if someone said to me or asked me, why should I come to Redemption Hill Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the things that would immediately pop into my mind are not necessarily, hey, that we believe Jesus is everything. A, because it sounds weird. But B, because my mind would immediately go to, uh, well, the church can meet your needs, ministries. Well, there's really great worship led by a guy with a man bun. He's awesome. There's decent preaching. We're going to focus on the Bible. The style that you might like is what we might have. And then we just start talking about philosophies. And then we start talking about the serving in the community that we do and how we partner with all these community partners and the mission trips that we're going on. And then we start talking about strategies. And we so often do this. And I know that for most of us, it's just because we really do understand the truth. But then we're just trying to have definable things of of how we can actually say that the church is true. But for many of us, as that language creates culture, our hearts follow, and those really become the things that we seek out as a great community. And we stop seeking out that Jesus is first, and we start seeking things in churches to meet our needs. You might say, well, Brandon, how do we even say that Jesus is everything? Then you just said it sounds a little bit weird and it probably wouldn't get people to come to your church. And so what I would say then is we need to begin talking about and creating culture and language around who Jesus is and why he is everything and how that affects the body and the community. So why should you come? Why should you be proud? Why why should you um, desire for the community to be reached as a part of Cross Life, as a part of Redemption Hill? Well, let me tell you about the love that I experience at this church because Christ has so loved me. Let me tell you about the family that I'm a part of at this church because God has brought us into a family and he has made us his sons and his daughters. Let me tell you about the compassion and all I'm beginning to do is to define to that person the attributes of our King Jesus, that he loves us, that he shows grace to us, that he's patient with us, he's forgiving to us. And those are the things that we find when we gather together with a body of people who believe that and are found in that and rest in that and believe and teach and live out that Jesus is everything. That's what we can be a part of. That's what we can say, man, our church. We see Jesus as everything. We can easily, though, begin to define church by our own criteria, by our own feeling, what our hearts desire, what our eyes themselves see. And we can be a gathering of people, listen, who sing praises to Jesus every single week, that give money to his furthering of missions through the church, that hear the word of God proclaimed, that see baptisms in the back, that take the Lord's Supper and participate in remembrance of what he has done, and that do mission and service in our community really, really well, and think that we're on the front lines of fighting against sin and seeing redemptive work and transformative work done in our community, that all the while could be functionally missing the heart of God. Just man's best attempt at community, building our kingdom, building our will, 
Not based on an outward view of of worshiping God and, and reaching the community, but on an inward view of what do I want? This is about me. And suddenly, in our culture today, the inward focus of the people makes and produces an inward focused church which we see prominently in three different ways. I'm just going to list these really quickly so that we can move on, but you probably know them, have seen them. Churches who have lost their first love, as Jesus says in Revelation 2. And they begin to think inwardly, and we begin to view our mission field with apathy or with animosity or with imitation. And it shows up in the way that we do the second thing that makes a great church because, and we see this in verses 13 through 15, that if Jesus is everything, verses 1 through 12, then verses 13 through 15, we are to be on the mission of Christ. But an apathetic church who is inwardly focused is just a church that is in the community. They've taken up space there. They're geographically where they define their mission field to be. And they've built a building. They have built a pretty place. They are doing lots of really, really cool things for their people. And as long as you can be them, as long as you can act like them, as long as you can look like them, you are welcome too. But basically they're just there. They don't have issues with the city. The city, the community doesn't have issues with them. But there's very little impact. And it may even just be because this church says all the right things, does all the right things, writes all the right things out on paper. This is who we're going to be. We've got a vision statement that makes sense. We've got a mission statement that is glorifying to God. And all of us would use the language that glorifies God. All of us would declare the truth. But then we just get caught up in other things becoming more important and lose our first love. It easily happens. And the people around them would just assume in the community have some sort of shopping center on the church property because they believe in their minds that it would benefit the community more than the church does. Then there are some inward lost their first love churches that view the mission field with animosity. This is a church against the city, against the community. Basically a bunch of Jonahs, if you're familiar with the story. We do this as a church when the city doesn't look the way we want, have the morality that we want, the, we want, the leaders that we want, the economic status around us that we want, the political views maybe that we want. And so we divide ourselves from the city. It becomes us versus them. We become a subculture and we have no effect on the city around us, even though we're doing things well in our compound. And anything different makes us extremely uncomfortable. And so instead of a church seeking redemption in the community, we seek segregation for the redeemed. Thirdly, which is a church we see much of today, a church that has lost their first love and therefore the mission goes out with it that seeks to just imitate the community. It just becomes a mirror of the community that they're in. There's no defining differences. And and it's just church as kind of a gathering and we'll sprinkle some Jesus in it. We'll sing some Jesus music and then we will go. And so in an attempt to become culturally relevant, they lose their relevance for what God has actually created them to be in their community. 
And listen, we could leave those churches every single Sunday. This is the scary part to me and where the gut check comes and the heart check comes and my mind has to be made right on the things of God because we can go to those churches every week thinking that pleases the Lord and that pleased my soul. My ears were tickled. My preferences were met. The ministries there were ministering to me well. Oh, what a great church. What a great body. What a great group of people. but they don't have the mission of Christ. He isn't everything. And that church could grow to 20,000 people in the community of Oviedo, Florida, and still lose the city. Because there's a greater treasure than Christ himself. It has ceased to be redemptive. It is void of his mission. It has ceased to have eternal transformation. It's simply giving people a religious outlet to be their own God, to think inwardly and participate outwardly in an inward church. So listen, at Cross Life Church, us at Redemption Hill, we do not want to be a church in the community or against the community or simply emulating the community, but we want to find Christ as everything in all that we do. There's nothing that we speak into you. There's nothing that you speak into one another. There's nothing that we do here, no ministry, no vision, no, no anything here that doesn't completely point to the fact that Jesus is everything. He's done it all. He's accomplished it all. When he said it was finished, that was true. And all we do is place our faith and surrender and everything he has accomplished. And it's 100% by grace that we are saved and brought into the beautiful family that he calls the church. This is what we long to be. And so in this text, the Lord summarizes the function of believers in the world. He, he's basically talking about how are we to be a church that's for the city, not in, not against, not, not uh, kind of just emulating, but for it. That we build one another up in truth and love, but then we are out and scattering for the city, the community that we are in. So he's saying the true purpose of the church, and he lays it out just like we have just said. So notice in verses 2 through 12, essentially he's saying, Blessed are those who depend on me for all things. Blessed are those who understand that you are needy, that you can't do it inwardly, that you can't have all that you were created to have alone. Blessed are those who get that it is all about what I have done on the cross and the resurrection and what I am doing now, standing between you and God as your mediator, crying out that that is my son, that is my daughter. And we display that, he says, by being salt and light into that community. And they will know you then by your love. Listen, because if we are completely dependent, verses 2 through 12, on who Christ is and all that he's done, he's everything to us, and the only answers that we have is him. Then suddenly we begin to love one another well again and have community with one another well again as our community is being made right with God. And so because he loved me, I can now begin to love you. I have everything I need in him. I am no longer inwardly thinking. I no longer need to use people to gain what I think I need to make it and have purpose and meaning and satisfaction in this world. But I can selflessly begin to love others because I have everything that I need in Christ. 
He's everything. We can be known as a community that has unity because the gospel allows us to see that all of us are, have the same great need and are essentially the same in our sin and need the same grace. And so for those of us that have grown up in Sunday school and those of us who right now are struggling with addictions, Christ needs to save us with the same amount of grace from Sunday school or addictions. It's not about religion. It's not about anything but him. And when we get that, suddenly everyone else becomes someone I look at and go, I need Christ. You need Christ. We're together in that. He saved us both. We can have unity in him. We will be known by peace because if you read verses 2 through 12, essentially Jesus is ripping us of our pride. And pride is us finding identity in things of who we are and what we do. And whatever we find pride in, when it's in who we are, what we do, or anything other than Christ, anything that might hinder that identity or come up against that identity, we become against Jonathan Edwards was the first to point out that whatever you take pride in and find identity in, you will begin to demonize everything that might come up against what you find identity in. Therefore, there will not be peace outside of Christ, but with Christ we can demonstrate peace in the community that we are called to. And we might be salt and light to the truth of who he is. The total dependence on him. So what he's saying is when we see Jesus as everything, verses 13 through 15, we are on his mission by being salt and light and even tells us exactly what we've been talking about this entire time so far, that if we don't live out that identity that he has given us, then it becomes useless. Not that salt actually can lose its flavor or that a light actually goes out when you hide it behind a bushel. It's still there. He's not saying that we can lose our salvation, but what he is saying is that we can come meaningless in the purpose that we actually have. Void of truth. We're not displaying that Christ is everything. So Jesus says the gospel makes us salt. And I absolutely love how he says this isn't an optional thing. Like the gospel, the truth, the, the receiving of all he has done for you actually makes you salt. Not you might be salt or you could be salt, but you are salt. And so here's what I want us to see quickly about salt. Salt has always been valuable throughout history. In Greek history, it was called theon, which means divine. Romans held that it accepted, uh, except for the sun, nothing was more valuable than salt. Soldiers would actually, actually be often paid in salt. That's where the saying comes that he isn't worth his salt. In many ancient societies, salt was used to mark friendship. And so if we were to share salt, it was a saying that, uh, that I am for your good. I want to benefit your family. I want for us to both be at peace together and for us to have uh, a mutual respect for one another's benefit. It was often used as a contract or a covenant. And we see this actually in Leviticus 2.13 in Scripture. And the underlying truth here with all that we could say about salt is that as believers being salt, then we should have an extremely important function in the world that we live in. Salt heals. Salt cleans. It preserves. 
It creates thirst. So essentially what it's saying here is that we bring value to our community. We're a church for the city, for the community, to bring redemption, to bring life, to bring truth, to see salvation lived out in our community. Then he also says that we are light. Now just for a second, I want us to think about how important light is. And most of us probably know that without the sun, there's no life, or our food supply would just disappear. Light and life, what we see from that, are closely related. Not only that, but light allows us to see the life that it is actually helping to create. And so light and understanding also work together. That's why when we understand something that we've had a hard time with, we say that the light bulb just went off. Light also allows us to feel safe. It's associated with goodness. Darkness brings danger, our sense of danger, a sense of fear, a sense of unsurety, a sense of searching. And so light reveals all things that are true. It brings light to the unsurety, light to the searching, light and truth to the fearful. So if Jesus is everything, our mission will be revealed in truth as being salt and being light, bringing life, bringing goodness, bringing salvation, redemption to our city. So that, he says, verse 16, the world will see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. And if we say that we are believers, the church, and we're not acting as salt and light as the church in our community and saying and believing and doing that Jesus is everything and on his mission alone, then we have essentially, church, neutered the truth of its value to give life. We're just playing church and pretending to be God's people. So listen, reveal that Jesus defeats the darkness. That in you, his kingdom is having an effect here and now in our community. And listen, I'm not saying to go out and just change the world and that that all is on you, but I am saying draw a circle of responsibility around your workplace and and your neighborhood and where you play and say, I'm going to take responsibility for these people that they see the gospel, they hear the gospel, they have opportunities to respond to the gospel. I am going to bring peace. I'm going to know their names. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to throw parties for them. I'm going to take meals to them. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to be a part of their story. They will know the gospel because they know me. And I'm going to take people that are far from God but close to me, and they are going to be close to God through me. And all God is calling us to do is be faithful to what he has called us to. He has done the work. Just point people towards him. And the third thing that makes a great church, and we close with this, is when Jesus is everything and when we are on his mission, we will see, verse 16, transformation in our city. A church mobilized to be on mission for the community to see and know God. Let's live as light in our city and our community. Let's live as salt in our city and our community. That Jesus is everything that we are on his mission. And let's see transformation. That's a great church. That's a place I want to be a part of. That's a body of believers that I want to call my home. Let's see it here.
Let's pray. Lord, this morning, God, I know that we're coming in here from all different places and with all different things, and, and there are people struggling with all kinds of different things, and we're coming from all different backgrounds, and God, I know that only you can speak to everyone exactly where they are. And so this morning, Father, we just ask that your spirit would just, would just rain on each of us like a waterfall. Leave, leave no debris of self behind, but just completely transform us that we might be a transforming agent, pointing people to your truth, displaying your gospel, seeing your kingdom come, speaking into it here because there's peace within and there's a kingdom that's coming that we know you reign and that all things will be made new. Let us reflect that here as salt and light. With heads bowed and eyes closed, some of you this morning might be sitting here and going, I don't know about this salt and light stuff. I don't even know. I'm I'm kind of searching for everything in and of myself, and I'm very inward focused right now, and I've never really uh, surrendered my life to Christ and the work that he has done for me. And so uh, I don't have the community that he's actually called me to have. I'm not being fulfilled in the community that I'm created to have in him. And so this morning I want to give you the opportunity to surrender your life and all of your work and all of your achievements and all of your accomplishments for the accomplishment and achievement of Jesus Christ that can actually save your soul. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to pray it out loud. I'm just going to ask that if you today desire to surrender your life to Christ, that you just pray it silently as I pray it out loud. And know that there is no magic in this prayer. You're simply saying that Jesus is everything. And that I see that I need him. And my life is now his. So if you desire that this morning, pray this after me. God, I know that I'm sinful. I know that my sin has broken community with you. But I know that you have made a way for community to be had again. And I surrender all that I am to what Christ has done for me on the cross and the resurrection. I completely surrender to you. My life is now yours. Let me be salt and let me be light to the fact that you are everything. For many of us maybe here this morning, maybe, maybe we're kind of wrestling with the fact that we haven't really been a part of what God has called us to be. And we might say that we're a part of a great church because we show up and we're here And because the church is doing some cool things, we kind of associate ourselves with doing some cool things. But let me challenge you this morning that the church is not an entity, it's a people. And if you're a part of it, you're a people on the mission of Christ. And so maybe some of us this morning just need to confess, I haven't been a part of making a great church. I haven't been a part of being a part of a community that God has called me to. And so I just need to repent of that and ask that God would use me to that end. And so now is our time to respond. And so the altar is open if you want to come and pray. Chris is, is right here. If you want someone to pray with you or, if, or maybe you prayed to receive Christ this morning and you just go, I don't even know what's next. 
then just come say and talk to Chris, and he'll pray with you and, and kind of let you know the next steps. But let's stand together, and let's respond to God's word.